Good to be with you guys. Um, before we dive in, uh, I have a quick announcement. I want you to mark your calendars for November 14th. That's three Sundays from now. On November 14th, I'm really excited because we'll be welcoming our founding pastor, Virgil Brown, his wife, Kelsey, and their precious kids to join us for church that evening. Originally, Virgil was going to come and share just about redemption as we sent them out to plant a new church in Northeast Portland. Um, he'll be coming and sharing about that. But I twisted his arm enough that he's actually going to come and actually bring us God's word as well. So he's going to be preaching to us uh, that evening on November 14th. And I'm really looking forward to doing that, to having him here, my friend, my brother, our founding pastor. And I hope that you will mark that day to be here. It'll be a good one. Uh, but even better is tonight because we're in Daniel 7, the chapter you've been waiting for. Um, just kidding. No, Daniel 7 is where we are tonight. If you could open your Bibles there. Um, this is a really significant chapter, not only in understanding the whole book of Daniel that we've been walking through, uh, but it's important in understanding the Bible. Um, if you've ever read the book of Daniel, maybe in your own private time, uh, you enjoyed reading, you know, chapters one through six, uh, you know, as you, you're seeing uh, this Nebuchadnezzar king turn into a beast and then a man, and then, uh, you know, you're, you have the fiery furnace and you have this creepy handwriting on the wall thing and Daniel in the lion's den, and then you get to chapter seven, and uh, you're, you're like, is this the same book? You know, because things shift pretty uh, dramatically when we get to this part. And then if you continue on to chapter 8, you probably quit. Uh, like most people, probably. You can admit that. That's all right. Um, and even furthermore, uh, I bet that most of us probably haven't even heard a whole sermon series through the book of Daniel. Maybe you have, but most of us haven't. And even more so, I would bet, no, you don't need to raise your hand, but I would bet that most of us have never heard a sermon on Daniel chapter 7. Uh, I know I have never heard a sermon on Daniel chapter 7. This is the first time I've preached on Daniel chapter 7. And uh, so this is kind of to my advantage a little bit because when I go home tonight and often will feel discouraged, like I should have said that better, or maybe next week I can do this better or something, I'll be able to tell myself that was the best sermon you've ever heard on Daniel chapter 7. So um, I will then have to remove the fine print only sermon, but still best sermon maybe you've ever heard. But, but why is this? Why do we have a hard time going into this part of Daniel? Well, we do have this change in genre as we get to this section of Daniel. We have a change in literature. We're moving from narrative, which all of us are familiar with, to apocalyptic literature. Uh, this is what Daniel 7 is written, what kind of genre, and for the rest of the book, uh, the form of literature it's in. And so there's certain things that we need to note about apocalyptic literature before we dive in, especially if we're going to be in this for the next a uh, couple weeks as well. Um, apocalyptic literature often uses strange visions. It heavily uses metaphor and symbolism. Uh, you can think of it this way. It's almost like you're watching a movie more than you're reading a book a little bit. Um, I don't know if you like Terrence Malick films. I, I really like a few of his films, like A Hidden Life or Tree of Life. And uh, they're really beautiful films, but as you're watching like Tree of Life, for example, you're like, this is really amazing. What is it about? You have no idea. You're just seeing all these beautiful images, and you don't really know what you're, you're looking at often. Uh, there's a Bible commentator named Tremper Longman uh, who said this. This will help us, I think, as we start off. He said, apocalyptic is metaphor-rich genre. Metaphors and similes teach by analogy. They throw light on difficult concepts and things by relating them to something we know from common experience. As such, images speak truly and accurately, but not precisely. We often don't know where the analogy stops. In this way, 
Images preserve mystery about ideas that are ultimately beyond our comprehension. It is a travesty then to interpret apocalyptic images too finely and to press them in their details. That's a really important um, thing for us to keep in mind as we begin to walk through uh, the rest of Daniel is that God has a clear message for us to receive uh, from these pages, but we want to be careful not to press the details uh, too, uh, too much into the details. Uh, because in apocalyptic literature, we want to do what Christians have done through the centuries. We want to together believe what the Bible clearly says we are supposed to believe and to also then realize that it is really important and possible even, it should be, for like-minded Christians who love Jesus, who love his word, to be able to disagree about our interpretation of some of these finer things and not be overly dogmatic about it. Um, Because the Bible doesn't always tell specifically to its fullest detail what every symbol means. Um, That's why even in our uh, GBC statement of faith, we don't have a a statement that we say you all all of us have to believe the exact same thing about the millennium or or the end of time and that kind of stuff. We all hold to the big picture, especially that Jesus will return and we know that. The Bible's clear about that and has some clear things to say about it. Um, so often, guys, there's going to be two people that, that when we get to these passages in apocalyptic literature that talk about the end of time, uh, there's going to be some people who are really into this kind of stuff, right? You, you, you think about it all the time, and there's others in it who swing the other way to the spectrum. And they think, I don't want to be like that. Not that that's bad per se, but the other spectrum says, I just want to live today, but live almost in a way where there's never the end that's going to come. I want to live in such a way as if the end will never come, as if it doesn't really matter. But that would also be to live naively, presently. So here we are. We're left wondering how should we be thinking about the future? Should we be concerned about how things will end one day? And overall, is it relevant? And it is, you guys. Uh, Our passage today is telling us that we need to take evil seriously. We need to take evil seriously But as we take it seriously, we shouldn't despair. And in turn, we're supposed to place our hope in Jesus and his future kingdom. And so here's what we see in verses 1 through 8. We see that kingdoms come and go, and they're all fundamentally the same. Secondly, we see this unique and ultimate king in the Son of Man. And lastly, we're going to see uh, our calling into this patient kingdom, or I'm just going to call it the patient kingdom. So let's look in verses 1 through 8. We'll kind of read as we go along here uh, together tonight. Let's read in verses 1 through 8 of Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head, and he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. Behold, another beast, a second one like a bear, was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh." After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. 
After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, in a mouth speaking great things. Uh, so, so far in Daniel, in chapters one through six, uh, it's been going in chronological order, and here that pattern has been broken. We're no longer in chronological order. We've actually jumped back in time. You notice that from verse one in the first year of Belshazzar. So this is right after King Nebuchadnezzar reigned, and right before, obviously, the events that took place in chapter five with the writing on the wall, right? And so Daniel is still in Babylon when he receives this vision. And that's important as we apply this. Uh, Secondly, though, we see that something else is new in this book, that Daniel himself is now seeing dreams and visions, and he can't interpret them, right? We've seen in chapters one through six uh, that kings are seeing dreams and visions, but Daniel is called upon to interpret them. But here, it's the exact opposite. And that's instructive for us, actually, because what we see in the first six chapters, if we could say it this way, is that God is speaking to these kings, and as he's speaking to these kings and they're being interpreted, he's speaking to the world about who he is. But here, in these last six chapters, more clearly, God is speaking directly to his people. We looked at the first six chapters, and we saw how Daniel, essentially, is being told to make a home in Babylon, We see this in Jeremiah where people who are in exile are told to seek the welfare of the city, to build houses and gardens and pray to the Lord on its behalf, right? They're supposed to make a home in Babylon. It's the idea of living in the world but not being of the world. Well, these last six chapters are shifting our gaze and basically showing us how to get home from Babylon. Like essentially, we're being led now to our eternal home and and gazing in that direction, Even though we're in Babylon, right, so to speak, if you're Daniel, right, this is showing you how to get home. So in these verses here, in 2 through 8, we see this first few images of the dream, and it's probably pretty fitting for for Halloween, right? These are not pleasant images. They're striking. They're terrifying. And in verse 2, we see these four winds that are kind of stirring up this great sea. That's important because uh, we've talked about this before, but in the Bible, the sea uh, in ancient Near Eastern culture was always seen as this place of chaos. It symbolized chaos and evil. And so this is a place where evil would arise from in their minds. So these winds are stirring up this chaotic sea and these four beasts are arising from the sea. Each is different from the other, right? They all have these interesting pictures. So what are these four beasts, right? That's what we're all wondering. We'll look at verse 17. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. So these beasts are symbolic and they represent different kings. They represent different kingdoms in the world. This has been common throughout history uh, to take an animal and use it as a symbol of a nation. So even in America, right, we, we have the bald eagle as a symbol of America, right? I don't know if you know this, but Benjamin Franklin actually tried to advocate for the turkey. So glad we're not that. But, uh, you know, so we got the bald eagle, right? The symbol of independence and freedom and all that kind of stuff. I grew up in Montana. Our symbol was the grizzly bear. That's pretty cool, right? Oregon were the ferocious beavers, you know? I mean, we could have chose something better maybe. I don't know. But animals, they, they carry a message. Uh, they carry a value with them. 
And so if you've been with us in Daniel, uh, these images might begin to bring to mind certain people. Because in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, he had a dream. And in that dream, there's this massive image. And we are told that the image of that dream represents four kingdoms. And many commentators think there's a lot of similarity happening here. So maybe consider the first beast here. He stands up like a human. He has the mind of a human after he's a beast, right? This might make you think of the story of Nebuchadnezzar, who for a time lived like a beast and then was restored. So many think that this first kingdom is Babylon. The second beast, it's a bear with different lengths of legs. Many people think uh, that it represents the Medo-Persian Empire, right, that, that conquers Babylon. Remember, Daniel's having this dream while Babylon is in power, right? So again, he's thinking out, this isn't good. Third kingdom represents a leopard, which is fast and powerful, right? If you've ever seen a leopard, um, and even faster when they have wings, I'm guessing. And many think this represents Alexander the Great and the Greeks who so swiftly moved across the region. And then you have this fourth beast, which seems most likely in most commentators' minds to represent the Roman Empire, which was an empire that was exceedingly strong and brutal. And then from it, we are told in verse 8, came ten horns and one little one that had eyes like a man and mouth like a human. And we're going to return to that little horn here in a bit. So so on one level, we can see, seemingly, begin to to identify these four beasts and these kingdoms at one level. But, But especially for the original recipients, these kingdoms would have been in their present and near future reality if you're Daniel. And so it's important to see that, that often these dreams or these visions or these you know, apocalyptic symbols have these multiple horizons of fulfillment even. Right? Like if you go up to Larch Mountain and you hike up there and you look out, you can see all the different mountains and the different horizons of the mountains and stuff. But if you're at the base of sea level, you can only see the mountain that's right in front of you. You can't see the mountains behind you. And so in a way, in the Bible, we often get these high altitude views of Scripture and we could see different levels of fulfillment. And so when you go to the end in Revelation chapter 13, what do you find there? You find another beast. And he's pictured as this composite beast of these four beasts. So when we think of this literature, we want to be careful not to overly reduce these images down. That's what I'm trying to say. So you see, we read this, and then we think to ourselves, who are the kingdoms? And we go, okay, that makes sense. It's these four kingdoms or something. And so what we want to be careful that we don't do here is merely just go, well, this is history. This is in the past. What am I supposed to do with this? God isn't just inviting you and me to try to interpret the details. Rather, he's showing us primarily that kingdoms will come and go. That's the natural order of things. They have real power, they are full of real evil, and they will come and go. Just imagine, you're, you're Daniel, right? You, you've just lived with Nebuchadnezzar, you've built a good friendship with him, you've even experienced prosperity in that kingdom. Maybe you're beginning to think, we're going to get out of this exile thing, we're going to be able to finally go home to Jerusalem, but then Belshazzar comes and he's even more brutal. He's not a good guy. So if you're Daniel, you might be wondering what's going on. Things were looking up. I figured we'd be back to Jerusalem by now. But God gives Daniel this vision that this kingdom will come and go, and then another one, and then another one, and then another one. So what's the point? Don't just be anxiously waiting and buying your time for the good kingdom to come, right? Or the good king. Maybe in our context, the good president or something like that. 
Don't be too upset or don't be too fearful when a new one comes because there's just going to be another one. Right? But so kingdoms will come and go, but not only will kingdoms come and go, but all kingdoms of the world are fundamentally the same. Right? This is the perpetual question. Okay, well, what comes next? Will that one be better if you read this slowly? Right? Well, will the next one be better? Well, no, God reveals to Daniel all these kingdoms are basically the same. There will be maybe more opportunities in some and less in others and vice versa, but they're all fundamentally, Daniel, not my kingdom. So kingdom after kingdom come and go. They're all the same, that they're not the kingdom of God. Right? We see here even they're, they're all based on ideas of power and rule and dominion and domination and subjugation and all kinds of ideas that are not the kingdom of God. So just because one king is going away and a new one is in town, don't think it's going to fundamentally be different. So verses 1 through 8 are saying, don't be naive about human history. Don't be so gullible as to think that some new regime or some new ideology or some new party will, will come and, and bring about some cosmic redemption or therapy in our life. Nations rise and fall, and some maybe are better or worse, but they're all marked by evil. That's, that's the image that we have here. So, so, so what are we supposed to do with this? What about you? What about me? If we're being honest, do you look around? Do you look ahead and hope that some other human government will rise up from the sea, so to speak, and prove to be your hope and lasting solution? Do you tirelessly work? Do you tirelessly stress and hope for a new regime to bring about the lasting change that you want? This is exactly how the world thinks. It's exactly how the world thinks. But before we move on, notice one thing that's, that's really important to see here, and that is where do these beasts get their dominion? Well, look in verse 6. It's received. They receive the dominion. So what you have pictured here is God who is sovereign over all of them. He, he reigns over all, which is then going to bring us to our second window in the text. We see this unique an ultimate king who's receiving authority and dominion forever. Look at verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, the little horn, right? And I looked, the beast was killed, its body destroyed and given over to, the, to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their domination was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Right, well, what's happening is Daniel is seeing all this that first image we just looked at and the second one kind of at the same time. So it's kind of a, a split screen idea. I don't know if you've ever played like Mario Kart before. Has ever played Mario Kart with one other person? One person, great, you're following me, right? You're on the same racetrack. You might be in the top box, the person's in the bottom box, right? You're, you're seeing the same thing, but from different perspectives at the same time, right? You know, a split screen, it's the same thing. Maybe you're in different places, but, but you're watching it happen at the same time. You can look up or down, that kind of thing. Just go play Mario Kart tonight. You'll know what I'm talking about, okay? That's what's happening here. The first image is in the bottom box, right? It's, it's on earth, but then Daniel looks up. 
He looks up. And as he looks up, he's in a heavenly courtroom, right? In this courtroom, like all courtrooms, judgments are passed, and there's one in this courtroom that is called the Ancient of Days. And he's on his throne, which symbolizes his authority and rule. And we just see the description of this Ancient of Days in verses 9 through 10. So he has clothing and even hair that's white as snow, which is meant to picture his purity and holiness, I'm going to use this now when someone points out my gray hair and be like, you know what? That's just a symbol of purity and holiness. And some of you can claim that more than me. But hey, good for you, right? I'll get there someday. Right? But when we think of someone in our culture that is old or ancient, right, we often think of those people as weaker or more frail. But that's not the image. Here, age means wisdom and strength. The ancient days is not giving off this image of frailness but grandness. He's the one who set up these beastly kingdoms and given them this dominion. This ancient of days has been there long before space was ever cleared on the plane of history for any of them. So what does this scene convey to you and me? Well, first of all, it conveys sanity, doesn't it? He takes his seat. While all other kingdoms of the world are feverishly active, he's seated. He's not taken by surprise, never undecided in what he's going to do never in a panic about his world. He sits. He doesn't pace about. Secondly, what are we supposed to see here? Fury. There's judgment here. There's fire. That often fire signals the presence of Yahweh, the presence of God. But with fire, if that's administered, that's an image of judgment. And fire does two things. It either destroys or it purifies, depending on the substance of you. That's what we see here. But third, we have this image of majesty. Right? A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Me and my uh, four-year-old daughter, Isla, compete daily in how we express our love to each other. So I'll say, I love you, and she'll say, I love you more than the whole sky. And I'll say, I love you more than the outer space. She'll say, I love you more than the galaxy. I'll say, I love you more than the universe. And she'll say, I love you more than anything. And what are we doing? We're, we're competing with each other. We're, we're grabbing for something larger, right? That's exactly what Daniel's trying to do here. He's trying to kind of wring out something like infinity from the multiplication table to be like, this is how great this Ancient of Days is. I'm just trying to wring it out. Look at the innumerable host that acknowledges the supremacy and splendor of this Ancient of Days. So who is he? This is none other than God himself. Your God. The God we were just singing to. He's sovereign. He's creating. He's sustaining. And in this courtroom, God sits in judgment and the books are open before him and he pronounces judgment upon the beasts even as they're boasting and bragging and opening their mouth to him. He's just judging them like they're nothing. This dream is showing Daniel and he's showing us that judgment will one day come to these kingdoms. All these human kingdoms. Judgment will come one day to all nations. Eventually, though, judgment will not come immediately. Eventually, though, It did not come in Daniel's lifetime. So if you're Daniel and you're seeing this, you're being told to be patient. Suffering was going to come, but one day judgment would come. When you see these two split screen images, it's really putting into perspective the power of these kingdoms. It's kind of like in the Wizard of Oz. 
You know, the Tin Man and Dorothy and everybody, they think Oz is just so great and wonderful, but then all of a sudden, like, Toto pulls back the curtain, right? And you see who's behind the curtain. It's not that grand, right? It's just a little guy doing his little thing, trying to pretend to be something so great. When you see the ancient days on the throne, it puts into perspective what we're supposed to see on that bottom screen. And so as, the scre- as this dream continues, what do we find? It's not only judgment we see, but we see not just judgment, we see salvation. Right? Look in verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one, like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. And to him who was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So we have the Son of Man here, meaning he appears as a human, but he's coming on the clouds, which is a symbol of divinity. Uh, J. Emerton says, the act of coming with clouds suggests a theophany of Yahweh himself. So if Daniel 13 does not refer to a divine being, then it's the only exception out of 70 passages in the Old Testament. So this is a divine man right here. We see in verse 14 that he comes and what's happening? Well, the same dominion that was just taken away from these beasts is given to him. He has glory. He has dominion. He has a kingdom. It's a different kingdom. And all peoples and nations and languages serve him. I wonder how powerful that would have been to Daniel. I mean, throughout the book, you're, you're kind of seeing Daniel as if he's like the only faithful one, it seems. I don't know if you've ever felt that self-pity, like, am I the only one? Right? Do you ever feel that way, that kind of self-pity way, like the, what Elijah does? But here, there's like an innumerable amount of people. There's going to be all nations and peoples and languages. How encouraging would that be to somebody like Daniel? Right? I'm not alone. So, so who is this son of man and what is his kingdom like? This is a powerful thing to explore. Well, the answer is clearly given to us in the gospel of Mark. We're not left to wonder. Well, there we learn that this is actually Jesus' favorite title for himself. I mean, just notice the content of what Jesus says he is like and what he does. Mark 9:31. He was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How about Mark 14? The high priest asked Jesus, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Most High? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, And here it is, coming with the clouds of heaven. That's Daniel 7. What did the high priest do? Did he bow down like the nations in worship? No, he tore his garments and said, blasphemy. He condemned him to deserving death. People began to spit on the son of man and cover his face and strike him saying, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. So Jesus says, I am the son of man. There's this outrage because he's claiming, I'm God. Guys, God, the ancient of days here, the son of man pictured, he has come near in Jesus Christ. 
How amazing is this? Well, when does he receive the kingdom? Is it a future thing or a past thing? Because that's what we see happening in verse 14. Well, it's a past thing because Jesus, we know, received this kingdom, this eternal kingdom through his death and burial and resurrection and ascension. He's victorious, we know, in the cross over Satan's sin and death, but his work is not yet complete. He ascends into heaven. He's seated on the throne. That's how he's depicted in the New Testament. And the kingdom is given to him. That's why before he ascends, what does Jesus say? All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. So go and tell. I'm the king. I've accomplished the work. I'm seated on the throne. So we go and we tell so that all people's nations and languages would serve him. As we need to see here that Jesus is completely unique to all the other beasts. All these other kings. Right? This passage is showing us that kingdoms come and go. Kings come and go. And in most ways, they are all the same. Some are better, some are worse, but they're all brutal, they're all godless, they're all evil. But there is one king who is unlike every other king. See, the normal rationale of any king is to do what? It's to kill rebels. It's to kill tyrants. To to dominate, to take the life of those who won't submit to their rule. But what about the son of man king? What does he do? Well, he dies for rebels. He dies to make rebels children of God. He comes to serve others, not to have others serve him. He is filled with mercy and grace and sacrificial love. You guys, there is no king like this king. It is in stark contrast to the others. He's the king who loves sinners, who sustains sufferers, and gives hope to the weak and the beaten down. I love in C.S. Lewis's uh, Magician's Nephew where Aslan's talking to these kids and he says, you see, friends, before the new clean world I gave you is seven hours old, a force of evil has already entered it. But do not be cast down. Evil will come of that evil, but it is still a long way off. That's kind of almost what we see here. And I will see to it that the worst falls upon myself. That's the son of man. You see the corruption, the evil, and he says, let the worst fall on me. Do you see the split screen? This leads us to see then the road that you and I must walk if you come and give your life to this king. That's where we get to this patient kingdom in 15 through 28. Let's read together. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious. The visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning this. It's kind of like an angel, right? So he, he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four beasts are four kings who arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. That's a long time. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, Exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell. The horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. 
Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise and another arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So we have here Daniel. I joked with some people earlier this week, he's like experiencing inception or something, you know. He's kind of coming out of his dream, but he's dreaming, but examining his dream. I don't know, kind of interesting here, right? He talks to someone, he says, help me understand my dream. And he goes on and gives this news that is meant to be encouraging. If you look down at verse 18, that the saints of the Most High shall receive and possess the kingdom forever and ever. So who are the saints? Well, it's everyone who's turned and trusted in this king. It's believers, it's Christians, you could say, right? So that's why when you see the New Testament writings of Paul, especially every letter that he writes, whether it's to Rome or Colossae or Corinth or Ephesus, he always says to the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So Daniel goes on in particulars, though, about the fourth beast. So he gets that good news, and he's kind of like, well, who's this fourth beast? Right? He kind of does what all of us do. I mean, especially my kids, you know, if you tell them something scary, they just lock on to it, you know? Our, they've only met my neighbor one time, and my neighbor told them there's coyotes sometimes in our neighborhood. And so every day they're like, don't forget about the coyotes, you know? And uh, I'm like, man, you've only met that guy once, and you remember what he said, but you don't remember anything I say, whatever, okay. But uh, anyways, we lock on, right, to the things that are kind of terrifying to us. And that's what Daniel does. Tell me about this fourth beast, right? He hadn't forgotten about him. He's got 10 horns, and you see in verses 20 to 22 the uniqueness of one of the horns that has eyes and speaks like a man. And Daniel says, as I looked, this one horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. That's real bad news. Until the ancient of days came, until the time when the saints possessed the kingdom. See, the angel gives explanation about this fourth beast in 23 through 27. It spends all this time on this fourth beast, and he tells of the devastating nature of this fourth kingdom. We're not supposed to, again, press the details too far here because they aren't even made clear to Daniel. And we don't even do this with other things. You don't read the parable of the Good Samaritan and go, well, what does the donkey mean? And what does the innkeeper mean? And the coins mean, right? So these, these symbols are meant to picture something for us, but let's, let's try not to press them too far and say what maybe they aren't saying, or at least we're, we're not in the knowledge of knowing what it's saying. Right? So we have this fourth kingdom. I said earlier that a lot of commentators think it's referring to the Roman Empire. Some people think then that in AD 70, when General Titus came and destroyed Jerusalem and went into the temple and desecrated it by worshiping Roman gods in the temple, that that's what this is referring to, the speaking words against the Most High. Maybe that's the case. But here in Daniel's vision, this little horn is seemingly representing the final consummation of evil. It belongs in the final days, something past Daniel's time, way past. 
See, and here's the thing, though. People will always try to identify what the little horn is throughout history. See, the little horn often, is, his characteristics are seen in people all over the place. So that's why when Hitler rises in power, everyone's like, Hitler is the Antichrist, right? When I was younger, Saddam Hussein, he must be this little horn, this Antichrist. You can Google it. Google's never wrong, right? Uh, you know, people thought George W. Bush was the Antichrist. People thought Obama was going to be the Antichrist or Donald Trump or Joe Biden. And so people throughout history, we look and we see these characteristics in the little horn, so to speak, and we go, maybe this is the Antichrist. And that's what we're supposed to see here. There's some characteristics that we see in people throughout, and one day it'll be consummated in, in some person. But look at verse 3. What do you see is indicative of this person? What? He shall speak words against the Most High. He has an arrogance about him against God. He's defiantly against God. He will wear out the saints. This is persecution. He shall intend to change times and the law. This is a form of self-deification. If you even look back earlier in Daniel, Daniel in chapter 2 said, God alone changes the times. This is a devastating picture. So much so that it leaves Daniel saying, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, my color changed. That's what we saw in Belshazzar. We're not supposed to blindly just read this and go, hey, it's going to be all right. No, 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 this is a, this is a difficult road ahead. People working against, speaking against God and his people, exhausting them, wearing them out in every way. It's a, it's a cost we all have to count if you're going to follow this king. But in verse 26, the court shall sit in session and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed in the end. So don't get caught up with the little horn because if the identification of that one is your obsession, if it is the thing that you think Daniel is trying to get across, you miss the message of Daniel because Daniel doesn't even know. No matter who this is, no matter when it comes, we see this reassuring news in, chapter, in verse 26 and 27 that this kingdom will end. And instead, the kingdom that Jesus, the Son of Man, has already received, it'll be given to his people. This kingdom is for the saints of God. It'll be given to you. Given to you. Guys, your future is tied up with Jesus. His future is your future. His present is your present. This is all past tense. It's done. It's not maybe, hopefully, we'll see. No, it, it will be. It is. Why? Because he's already done it. He's already received it. So here's the thing. We often have in our minds the things in our life that we want to see change. We read things like this and we kind of recoil from it. We're like, that's a hard road. Like, I don't want that to happen. And so we try and work towards um, that, maybe even assuming that well, God doesn't really want that for me as well. What if his promises for you tonight aren't what you're really hoping for? What if when we read a text like this, you're like, that's great, but it's not enough. What if that's where this lands in our hearts? Is Daniel 7, are his promises to you enough tonight? Or did he not land with the full assuagement of your desires? See, guys, the problem for us is not the promise being given here. The problem with us 
is the patience that it requires. That's our problem. It's not the problem, it's not the the promise, it's the patience. This is a patient kingdom. I mean, have you ever been so excited? Maybe your cup of coffee brewed in the morning, you were so excited to drink it, you drank it and you burnt your tongue. You weren't patient, right? What happened? You ruined the rest of your day, right? Or you're excited for a cup of soup, take a bite too fast, you ruined your whole dinner, right? You then are disappointed because of your lack of patience. It ruined everything. Guys, we should not look to God and say, this sounds good, but God, you're too slow. So I'm going to shift my hope. Maybe another beast will rise out of the sea. I'd be disappointed. This is a, a patient road. Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, but do not overlook the one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Oh, God is so patient in accomplishing his purposes from our perspective. And he's so patient even with us. So what does this have to do with us tomorrow, living in the, the East County, Portland metro area? How does this affect your life tomorrow? Is this just something you, you kick the can down the road on, so to speak? Well, no, instead, this affects our lives not only tomorrow, but tonight. As Charles Spurgeon said, when we, when we hear about God's sovereignty, he said the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the Christian rests their head. So here's how this changes your life. When you go to bed tonight, you lay on your pillow and you go, God, may my pillow not be this pillow, but may it be your sovereignty. You've given me promises that I will receive. But then you and I wake up tomorrow and we go about our lives and we view our lives realistically. Realistically. What does that mean? Well, one, we know that there is real evil in the world and evil will often thrive in the world. We're realistic about the world, but then we also sing the great hymn, Solid Rock, when darkness seems to hide his face. I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. We sing that song. We are realistic. How else are we realistic? We look at verse 27 and we see that we shall be given the kingdoms will be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. This everlasting kingdom, what does that mean? We wake up tomorrow realistically knowing that we shouldn't expect this dominion and this power tomorrow. It's not coming tomorrow, but it will come. So therefore, I don't live my life as a Christian trying to reach for the beastly power that keeps perpetuating itself in the world, thinking that'll be my solution. As Christians, if I can just have this power, that'll change everything. I don't reach for that power, but I know this dominion comes. So therefore, then we live now like we would then. And we look to Jesus as our example and his character for how he lived. And we've already quoted many things that he said about himself, and we do the same. We live realistically. If we don't live realistically, you guys, you will end up being very anxious. 
because you won't be given the sovereignty that you crave, the sovereignty that you're not even promised, or you will despair, thinking nothing will ever change. And that's not what Daniel 7 is saying to us. You guys, kingdoms come and go, and they're all essentially the same. But look up and see the sun. He's been given dominion, and he's good. So keep going. It'll be hard, but it'll be worth it. So we walk the path together. We walk the path together, fixated on the Ancient of Days, looking to the sun. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that your word is life to us, that it is our daily bread. It is a lamp to our feet and our path. When we get to difficult passages like this and we feel very um, humbled, Lord, and we also feel um, very much at peace knowing that you are God and you are good and you are carrying out your purposes in this world. Lord, I do pray that um, that the things that you're wanting to communicate to us, Lord, uh, the things that you're wanting to shape in our lives, maybe free us from or um, convict us over, Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do that in our lives tonight as we consider your word and what it has to say for how we live tomorrow here in Gresham. Lord Jesus, would we look to you with the good work you've done for us and with that strength in your people tonight, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.